2: Superman, Superman, does whatever a super can. Fixes pipes,
1: does repairs. <laughs> He's a super and a man. Look out. It's, it's a, a super Superman. Yeah, Yes, okay, that's right. you get flooding on this one because uh, uh, <laughs> uh, I fixed the model.
2: The classic tale of a normal super in a New York building getting superpowers by getting bitten by a radioactive rat and combating crimes all across New York City by cleaning people's things and unclocking. That one comic where he snakes out the drain and all those fucking turd monsters come out and they're all racist. And it's just like, whoa, that was some interesting shit. It
1: was the 1940s. You have to imagine just how racist those turd monsters had to be to be remarkably racist in that time.
2: Welcome back to part two of Superman. Today we're going to wrap up a little bit more of the Silver Age because we wanted to dwell in it for a little bit longer. We're going to cover the Bronze Age and we're going to talk, I think, spend more time than we thought we would on the films uh, from the 70s, the uh, late 70s, early 80s Superman movies because they're actually a lot more interesting than we thought they were when we started doing research.
1: I don't know why because, like, it's – it's. I just never – if you've never given it thought, you're just like, oh, yeah, there's a Richard Donner cut oh, and, like, uh, you know, uh, the movies got bad over time but like whatever they're just like generic uh, blockbuster movies no it turns out it's an international clusterfuck of yes. like
2: insane personalities it's kind of amazing and 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 I love how it ranges the full gamut of like the kind of superhero movies we get today mm-hmm. which are you know both, both you've got both like the Iron Man of its day with mm-hmm. Superman 1 mm-hmm. you know a classic like really really ignited the superhero like film genre in a lot of ways I mean there wasn't really any anything quite as big as it until then it
1: ignited the like special effects blockbuster it was that in star wars as a one-two punch yeah completely
2: changed the face of movies and 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 uh on top of that you also have like superman 4 which is like (laughs) the other side of the spectrum in terms of superhero films and how superhero films can go horribly wrong and just be these terrible like Weird comedies sort of, you know Almost reminds me of like Transformers Rise of the Fallen or whatever Like they just went way for like slapstick For no, re- like it just doesn't make any sense It's like when you know something's bad You just cram it full of slapstick comedy <laughs> Or something, I I don't know But either way, we'll get to those soon But let's start off, uh, let's pick it back up In the 60s It starts, uh, uh, it starts a decline for Superman um, In 1959 The actor George Reeves Who played Superman in the 50s Adventures of Superman fucking kills himself. Um, allegedly. Allegedly. Or he um, was
1: the center of an international sex crime ring.
2: By the way, that TV show we didn't talk a lot about. Uh, it's sponsored by Kellogg's. It ran from 1952 to 1958. Uh, it uh, it pretty much, the end of that show marked the end of essentially the um, sort of marked the end of like the golden age of Superman in a way because mm-hmm. after that, they tried to like do two other attempts at a TV show for Superman. It didn't really work. Are you talking about the adventures of Super Pup? Yeah. It Adventures of Super Pup, and Adventures of
1: Superboy. If you can find footage of the Adventures of Super Pup, which I assume you can because you speak English and have access to YouTube, <laughs> um, it is a nightmare <laughs> within a nightmare of bonkers visuals as people are wearing these like animatronic cartoon dog heads. jeez, oh, a fucking trip.
2: <laughs> and um, uh, you also have what a Broadway musical in 1966 called It's a Bird It's a Plane. It's Superman. That failed very hard.
1: But You've Got Possibilities is a catchy bassinova that actually still exists to this day as like a big audition song. Really? Yeah, yeah. It's like <laughs> da, 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 necktie, the worst You've got possibilities do, ba, do, do, do. It's nice. actually uh, If you give it a listen You will have a spring in your step It's kind of amazing
2: Should we play well, Let's play a little bit of it Oh yeah sure I, I think it's it.
1: Linda Lavin Linda Lavin Yeah but uh, this is It's actually kind of a I, I guess they're playing it now um, Is it playing right now? Are I, you hearing our it? Our setup is very awkward Um <laughs> But uh, this is one of the, uh, this is famous, Uh, Joe Schuster, who at this Mm. point had been uh, destitute for a very long time, was uh, blind, outside of the theater, begging for tickets to his own character's musical. Mm. Um, I think also during this period, he uh, this is like kind of a legendary story, Um, uh, Joe Schuster uh, having gone to... uh, uh, Blinded or lost eyesight to uh, continue drawing actually uh, got work as a delivery man and had to deliver a uh, suit to the offices of DC in New York City where people recognized him felt sorry for him and the editors gave him like $100 and told him to clean himself up
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yeah Uh, And also, at the same time, you've got Marvel pumping out their heroes uh, like Spider-Man, Hulk, and Fantastic Four. Superman's not the only man in town. You've got some new heroes coming out that are really kind of giving them a bit of a run for the money, and that's kind of what motivates them to make certain changes in the Silver Age. Um, Also, we kind of breezed past Lois Lane. I want to take a minute to talk a little bit about her history. Um, Essentially, uh, one of the main influences on Lois' characterizations was actress Glinda Farrell, and her portrayal of the fictional reporter Torchy Blaine in a series of Warner Brothers films yes typical plots of these movies featured the character um have the uh you've got the resilient fast talking torchy solving a crime uh and usually it's uh trying to happen before her less than perceptive boyfriend loudmouth police detective steve mcbride i want to look these up uh, uh because it's definitely that fat that quick talking reporter type you know but it's like legitimately like from the time i feel like i'm always watching parodies of that character i think this is like one of the actual characters that it's
1: very weird that to this day i still imagine lois lane uh speaking in a weird uh, Mid-Atlantic affectation.
2: Yes, yes. and uh, uh, Joe Schuster. I don't cry no
1: more soups. You hear me? It runs my nylons.
2: <laughs> we talked about the fact that she was also heavily based on um, a a lady, a real life lady. That uh, <gasps> a real life lady, a real life woman. Bazal, bazing. <laughs> Uh, you ever he, think we'll meet One of those I don't know Maybe someday I think Lexi's a real w- Woman in the world I mean to be fair I've never seen her in person You <laughs> just keep talking about her I am making her up <laughs> And I created a, a a woman out of a broom That I started to do Streams with And talk for With uh, using I at least had Marie
1: cream. On the podcast once On our Sailor Moon episode mm-hmm. Definitely not my cousin Jimmy in a high voice <laughs>
2: So Joe Schuster, uh, I guess, put out uh, maybe a call for for uh, someone to come in and and essentially be someone he could uh, a lady he could draw to sort of base her off of, and it was the model named Joanne Carter that uh, came in. Um, uh, Carter, oh no, Carter had actually... No, we actually, went over this.
1: It was uh, Schuster's girlfriend at the time post for him.
2: Well, her name was Joanne Carter. She had placed an ad in the Cleveland Plain Dealer newspaper um, in the Situation Wanted column advertising herself as a model. Schuster hires her up, starts to draw her. Um, he says this about her. To me, she was Lois Lane. She was a great inspiration for me, though. She encouraged me. She was very enthusiastic about the strip. It meant a lot to me. So she came in and was like this super supportive, just wonderful beautiful woman who like believed in their, in their comic and really just gave them a lot of uh, motivation. She was with Schuster at first but then she went on to marry Siegel um, and That's she would right, later be
1: Jerry Siegel. Watch out, I'm gonna steal your girl. <laughs> I'm gonna marry that. I'm gonna lock it down. And what's cool about her too No, was... don't look at me too much. The eye contact gives me very anxiety.
2: <laughs> oh my god, Giger's in the room. He wants to say something to Jerry Siegel right now. You
1: don't talk to me like that, Giger. I will steal your wife. I will steal her. The cover <laughs> (laughs) of darkness and she will be mine (laughs) um (laughs) i'm the number one wife stealer jerry siegel
2: (laughs) your nose is so round and cartoonish it's like um, Mr. McGoo is who I imagine when you start talking like that. Have I you think. noticed
1: that my necktie actually covers the breadth of my chest? It <laughs> is a very wide
2: necktie. My wide pants necktie. are up to my nipples. <laughs> I just imagine. And I fuck. I fuck real good. You have no eyeballs, just squints, just, just like <laughs> wrinkles over over uh, uh, eye skin. I'm and- going
1: over to your mother's house for rosh hashanah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. She hasn't celebrated. Uh So, uh, anyways, yeah, another cool thing about Joanne Carter, and we'll get into the lawsuit stuff a little bit later probably, is that she was one of the people who fought super hard to get Siegel his due. Mm -hmm. Uh, Man, that shit is dark, man. That is some ugly shit. I think that's, like, uglier than the um the batman kind of disputes with uh what's his name Bill the guy finger yeah, yeah yeah it's fucking nasty and like he just, jack Kirby in that shit and like yeah. all this stuff what is that like why wouldn't they just give him some fucking money like because as so soon, they're making so much money as
1: so, uh, well in the opposite end of the coin you have stan lee who was the ultimate company man uh-huh. who was rewarded handsomely for kind of uh you know Being the face of these characters, because he knew his
2: way around the contract, essentially, or no, no, he just just never of
1: things. He just always like, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm making wild, uh, you know, statements here. Don't don't actually quote me on this anything meaningfully. But you know, it's there's the difference between like, sure thing, Mister Giant Corporation, and like, like, what the fuck, you owe me so much fucking money. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but. You know, it's the precedent they would have to set if like every single idea, you know, it's like record companies. There's so many rackets where they take on all this work for hire on the hopes that like one in a thousand is a billion dollar idea. Mm, mm. So like I honestly like they should now, thankfully, um, you know, there's a little bit more respect and a little bit more rights given out. And especially thanks to efforts in the 80s from people like Eastman and Laird and Alan Moore and uh all, all, like a bunch of other people now writers know enough to ask like before they actually like sell their uh work to major companies but you know the uh jack kirby uh jerry siegel joe schuster these are horror stories for people
2: yes yeah uh so i know we talked about lex luther last uh, week. But I wanted to spend a little more time on some of the more memorable villains mm. from the Superman canon. A lot of these guys uh, and gals originated from, or maybe it's just guys, probably it's just guys, originated from- Superman
1: would never strike a woman.
2: <laughs> <laughs> originated from um, uh, the Golden Age, but then were much further developed in the Silver Age. Some were in, introduced in the Silver Age. Most of these, I don't even know if the, any of them Well, the were preeminent in the Bronze Age. Well, uh,
1: Superman villain who screams of the Silver Age, is uh, Brainiac.
2: Yes, Brainiac is really the big one that we didn't really talk about. Um, an extraterrestrial cyborg or android, first appearing in Action Comics number two forty-two. He arrives on Earth um, and shrinks Metropolis, storing it into bottles. Um, he also did this to Kandor, Krypton's capital. That kind of comes in later. But yeah, Brainiac really, besides Luther, he was probably the the strong, maybe the second in line in terms of big villains for the Superman uh, canon.
1: It also brings out a uh, thing that happened in the silver age where superman's powers had grown so exponentially you know he at first he was just a particularly beefy man and at this point, you know, he has super hypnosis and like he can shoot little clones of himself. That's a thing that fucking happened. Um, uh, uh, you know, his strength is literally limitless. If he needs to move something, he will move planets and mountains and galaxies if he has to. And so uh, so many Silver Age stories started going out into extra dimensions yes. and further galaxies. Well,
2: the Silver Age is strongly marked by sci-fi just yeah. coming into play way harder in the Superman ever and really in comics in general. Role. but yeah the silver age for superman definitely getting way more into sci-fi plot
1: um characters like the flash and green lantern are mm-hmm. kind of uh, replaced and with uh much more sci-fi uh, uh sensibilities you know green lantern was like kind of a spooky ooky magic man and they turn him into a space cop the flash was like just a weird greco-roman guy with the dumb helmet and he becomes like a lightning spandex-clad like science hero. Yeah, um, huh? but it, it was literally the only thing you could left to do for Superman is to send him into like, okay, you can't fight bank robbers anymore. Right, go punch the sun.
2: Yeah. Also, who can forget? And also, it's about being tricked. And that, that brings me into this oh, next villain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because a lot of Superman's like, oh, he has all the brawn. He's super powerful. So we have to figure out ways to trick him, which I think is why, like, Luther, literally his name is Brainiac. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a lot about being, like, of a of, uh, smart mind, mm-hmm. you know, and being able to uh, work around Superman's uh, just pretty much, like, limitless power. Uh, Mr. How do you say it? Mr. I always say Mitzelplik. Mitzelplik. Mr. Mixelplick. The uh, uh, he was introduced actually in the mid '40s by Siegel, but he was very different. He's definitely grown to be much more um, endearing, I think, and 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 really much further developed. He's a trickster imp that can only be sent back home to where he is, which is the fifth dimension, by tricking him into saying or spelling his name backwards. Um, and his name is spelled M X Y Z P T L K, which is a very ballsy. <laughs> Thing to do i think make it like an unsayable name for a character but he ends up getting more and more cool as he goes on he always has like a cigar in his mouth now and a cool like top hat and he's just kind of like a badass and, and i a, think it's
1: more of a bowler hat if i yeah have to. bowler
2: hat actually you're probably right on that and um i don't know he's just like a fun character just like a fun really like ridiculous ass character to throw in there just to like play with play with uh, things with that um, you also have Metallo a cyborg with a kryptonite power source which he uses as a weapon against Superman he first appeared in action comics number 252 originally as a scientist with strong metal armor but that's like more uh, golden age stuff and then they bring him back a lot of times it's a lot of comic book writers in this Age after comics have evolved to really get a lot, I think a lot more interesting and then they'll look at these old villains and be like I bet I could do something cool with that character mm-hmm. and then they'll bring him back and develop in a, in a more interesting way hence the kryptonite Core is a very interesting thing for a villain. Yeah. For a villain to be powered by Superman's weakness is just mm-hmm. fascinating. You can do a lot of cool stuff. There's Parasite, a biohazard accident gives him the power of Rogue, essentially, right? Where he can essentially just draw powers from things he touches.
1: Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's always that's always a really. I mean, it's a very simple thing, but, like, the longer Superman fights him, the weaker Superman gets and the stronger
2: Parasite. And also, it starts to introduce the whole, like, um, you know, uh, the biohazard thing, toxic Mm. waste and that kind of stuff. Uh, Toxic Avenger, I found a way to get him in the Superman episode. That's where I'm going to reference him. Zod. Zod.
1: Terrence Stamp?
2: (laughs) Zod nothing nothing this inspires you to say nothing when I scream Zod at you Zod I'm I'm not gonna kneel you asshole (laughs) I'll never kneel (laughs) He's the megalomaniacal Kryptonian in charge of Krypton's military forces who tried to take over Krypton and later Earth when Superman releases him from the Phantom Zone. Of course, the Phantom Zone is like the weird um, space jail uh, that's out there, which comes into play for a lot of different stories. Um, I think maybe one of the funnest ones is Bizarro. Uh, Another, like, very prototypical Silver Age character. Yes, it, it actually, he debuted in Superboy number 68 in the late 50s uh and alvin schwartz was uh uh his creator and he said this of the character i was striving you might say for that mirror image that opposite and out of a machine which would reveal the negative superman came the mirror image always remembering that in a mirror everything is reversed the times were such that one-dimensional characters your standard superheroes even even in comics seemed rather simplistic like paper cutouts uh, what was demanded was the full dimensional personality, a figure that carried a shadow, if you like. I was certainly inspired to some degree also by C.G. Jung's archetype of the shadow, and Bizarro certainly reflected that as well. I love that he was based on F- Jungian psychology. That's incredible.
1: <laughs> um cleaner room, bucko. Uh, the <laughs> thing that uh, I actually ended up doing research, I read like how they folded Bizarro into the regular Superman canon, and it involved like... This bizarre, imperfect cloning machine that, like, um, that Lex Luthor hijacked, and the thing is, is I was expecting them to like. You know, it seems like kind of edgy at first. Like Bizarro comes into being, it was like me a mistake. Why me exist? <laughs> and I was like, oh shit, they're going dark. And like, I thought the Silver Age was like kind of goofy. Yeah. Within three pages of that happening, uh, Bizarro creates a bizarro version of himself thus creating a new identical superman and forces lois lane to marry him (laughs) it's very like they went right like i was like oh silver age you've
2: delivered (laughs) and speaking of the silver age i wanted to talk about a few classic silver age stories and what i love about these stories is the uh I, i didn't realize you know what's interesting I just realized that like the death of Superman I mean so for me personally we didn't really get into the personal experience with Superman I think that's because neither of us were like super into the golden age of su- Superman much less the silver age I think for us our time with Superman was the popularity of the death of Superman and that whole story arc more in the modern age that we'll get into next week um, but I remember that was such a huge deal for me that was such a big event oh absolutely that was like the big kind of signifier of like comic books are gonna be worth something someday ah because Superman of course, course the most uh expensive you know comic book action comics number one is you know whatever over over three million dollars or four million dollars or whatever it is mm-hmm. and so everybody went to the store and was like this is this huge event it's going to be worth so much money someday like my brother has the comic in a in a board thing or whatever i had the you know the big i used to read that uh trade over and over again just loved wow. it with doomsday and i come to realize like the death of Superman has been an important event all through Superman's career and I think it's just because he's so invincible that the most interesting thing you can do with him is kill him. Yeah. Because he's so unkillable. You know what I mean? So even in the Silver Age you have The Last Days of Superman written by sci-fi author Edmund Hamilton drawn by classic Superman artist Kurt Swan. Superman contracts a space virus that's slowly killing him so he rounds up all the folks Supergirl, Crypto, uh, etc. to take care of this final thing on earth before he dies so it's fascinating the idea uh, the concept of like Superman only has a certain amount of time to live what would he do you right. know to would try you- to like send it Best send off the planet Which and is a
1: story that uh, Alan Moore ended up doing In Whatever Happened to the World uh, Man of Tomorrow Exactly Which, which uh, we
2: covered extensively In the Alan Moore yeah. episode But I definitely wanted to note it here Because again It's just like the, This amazing story Even Grant story. Morrison's
1: All-Star Superman Is ostensibly a death of Superman story uh-huh. Which like yeah You're absolutely I never thought of it that way But you're absolutely correct The like most interesting thing You can do to a uh, god Is kill him
2: Yeah that's it I mean and so Jesus It all it all works out Yeah So it's all, it's always been like kind of a fascination for comic book writers with Superman and those are always the big legacy stories you also have some other things you've got like Superman versus Muhammad Ali to go to the other direction with the fun silver age stuff having having Superman fight like a real person oh is that bronze
1: well bronze age is a little bit uh squirrely but especially if you read Superman versus Muhammad Ali uh it acknowledges like racial tension it acknowledges modern events it acknowledges like it, it goes out of its way. I mean, it's written by Denny O'Neill, who was definitely the guy who ushered in the uh, Bronze Age of Superheroes. Okay, with, uh, yeah. we, we I think,
2: I think we think talked, it's technically Silver Age, but yeah, it's pretty much like that transition into. Very Bronx. much.
1: Denny O'Neill is one of the most tra- transformative figures in comics, even though he was also some guy who almost worked on Transformers as we brought. <laughs> cucka whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, another thing that happens in the Silver Age is uh, he begins crossing over with Batman. World's Finest happens. Yep. Um, Superboy stories keep going strong. Wait, Super... is
2: Justice League Bronze
1: Age? Uh, no, Justice League also happened, uh, but Superman was always kind of left out of Justice League stories for a very long time.
2: Gotcha, right. Um,
1: and it, it was kind of like even uh, in our Wonder Woman episode, even the Wonder Woman team was like reluctant to have Wonder Woman feature in Justice League. But world's finest Batman and Superman team ups were huge. Yes, um, Supergirl was introduced first as an imaginary story, uh, where like uh, oh Jimmy Olsen like gra- like found a magic staff and wished her into existence. Then she got like space cancer and begged for death, and yeah, Jimmy course. Olsen wished her away. Absolutely. Then they uh, because she was so popular, they reintroduced her as Kara Zor El, a very circuitously. Arranged survivor of Krypton. And specifically, she was Superman's cousin. So there would be no romantic uh, competition between her and Lois Lane. Of course. Um, the books Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen, and Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane, were also introduced and super popular, um, where, you know, they kind of told more slice of life stories and kind of told stories through. Uh, those characters' perspectives and the Lois Lane comics are bizarre.
2: Do you think? I will say this though. Do you think if Supergirl and Lois Lane like started like kissing or whatever? you think you watch it? Do you mm-hmm. think you watch it? You
1: have to think about your own cousin and answer that however you feel is appropriate.
2: <laughs> My cousin is Supergirl. Do <laughs> I don't say anything? You'd watch it? Would you watch it? Uh, I would watch
1: Lois Lane Supergirl kiss, but I'm just a fucking gross pervert.
2: <laughs> what if we were? What if that happened to us? <laughs> so many things would have ha- I mean I'm the- becoming table, Holden right now I need to call cool it <laughs> <laughs> No use the darkness I would hate to have <laughs> <laughs> Horny horny dog over here Welcome Jake to a new show um, It's a bird It's a wing. <laughs> Alright I thought that was way
1: funnier than it probably had any right to nah, be No it's dicks are the funniest <laughs> thing That come off of a man's body
2: Holden here. Did you know you spend one third of your life sleeping? That means you should be comfortable while you do it. Also, you don't want to spend the other two thirds of your life going to the mattress store all the live long day. That's why it's time to check out Casper, who will mail a mattress directly to your home. The experts at Casper work tirelessly to make a quality sleep surface that cradles your natural geometry in all the right places. The original Casper mattress's breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night casper offers two other mattresses the wave and the essential the wave features a patent-pending premium support system to mirror the natural shape of your body the essential has a streamlined design at a price that won't keep you up at night with over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars across casper amazon and google casper is becoming the internet's favorite mattress casper cuts out the middleman and that's why its products are affordable you get hassle-free returns if you're not completely. Completely satisfied get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com forward slash wizard and using the code wizard at checkout again that's $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com forward slash wizard and using code wizard at checkout terms and conditions apply okay so ch- uh we've got mort weisinger mort right yes mort weisinger and, like, perfectly, at the perfect exact end of the Silver Age, uh, leaves and is replaced by Julius Schwartz. Mort Weisinger had been the editor of Superman for its entire run, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he came in a little a little into the Golden Age and was the one who kind of cleaned it all up and made it ship-shape and made it real clean and nice and moral and all that kind of stuff. And took away any kind of, like, uh, political comments, you know, or anything like that. Oh, yeah, that. yeah.
1: Superman was no longer a fighter for specific political causes, Uh, A lot of, yeah, like a lot of the changes we talked about, um, he very took very, very strict control of the continuity of what happened from episode to issue to issue across the different series, Uh, the way Superman's powers were kind of codified uh was also uh, his direct
2: involvement so julius schwartz replaces mortwiser but they had actually worked together very closely they had co-founded solar sales service uh literary agency and represented such writers as ray bradbury and some of hb lovecraft's final works weird isn't that crazy they were, an, they were literary agents. And, and so I think that's probably how Julius got the job. You know, he's like close with Mort and everything. Um, and he also, by the way, Julius Schwartz, kind of like our uh, Superman creator, uh, kind of like Siegel, uh, in the sense that he ended up publishing one of the very first ever sci-fi fanzines, which was called Time Traveler. And Jerry Siegel also had published one of the first ever sci-fi fanzines. So kind of interesting there. And uh, Schwartz is essentially known for bringing in the Silver Age uh, himself by co-creating Flash. Flat, the mark of Flash being introduced into comic books is essentially what brings upon the Silver Age, widely known as the moment that uh, the Golden Age became the Silver Age. He also revived other heroes such as the Green Lantern, Hawkman, and the Atom as you were just talking about, how he kind of sci-fied everybody up. He also is is known for coming up with the Justice League of America. You also have Jack Kirby taking the reins in nineteen in the 1970s using the spin-off title Superman's Pal Jimmy Olsen to develop Develop his fourth world concept. Um, He specifically
1: asked to get put on the lowest selling DC comic,
2: so he could just had a cool idea, and he just wanted to be able to do it without anybody fucking with him. Yeah, that's kind of awesome. That was
1: also another big. uh, This is actually a big transition between the uh, Silver Age and the Bronze Age. Was that uh, Jack Kirby left Marvel?
2: Yes, that was, that was like, a huge moment. Yeah, yeah.
1: These are very amorphous concepts. Like yes. it's not like industries. Like, all right, everybody, we're gonna have a major cultural and tonal shift in three,
2: two, uh. uh, 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 uh. <laughs> One go, <laughs> and it did perfectly. Though happen like in nineteen seventies, yeah. so, which is very interesting. Uh, the shift was also was marked by a major storyline entitled "Kryptonite Nevermore," oh. written by Dennis O'Neill, that significantly lowered Superman's power level and eliminated most of kryptonite on Earth. Because essentially, they decided that. Uh, it was literally just kind of every boring. story
1: had to involve krypton gold kryptonite white yes. kryptonite blue kryptonite because it was the only way for Superman to be in trouble. So like gangsters would just have like, like, bank robbers and mobsters would have, like, kryptonite in their pocket ready to go. Like, it was just omnipresent.
2: Dennis O'Neill's work includes Green Lantern and Batman, as well as Daredevil in its heyday. I love this quote from O'Neill about about his role as a comic book writer for these giant um, giant titles, right? He said, It changed my mind about what I do for a living. Superman and Batman have been in continuous publication for over half a century, and it's never been true of any fictional construct before. These characters have a lot more weight than the hero of a popular sitcom that lasts maybe four years. They have become post-industrial folklore, and part of this job is to be the custodian of folk figures. I love that line. (laughs) You are the custodian of folk figures as a comic book writer writing for something like Batman or Superman. You have a responsibility. He says, Everybody on Earth knows Batman and Robin. Uh, and I, I just think it's absolutely fascinating uh, uh, th- to look at it like that, to, to feel that responsibility and that weight when you do write for a title like that. Um, other writers of the time include Elliot S., with an exclamation point, Magan, who wrote the classic Bronze Age tale, Must There Be a Superman? This is so
1: this is where it really clicks. Yes, um, because Must There Be a Superman is a highfalutin story in which the Guardians of the Galaxy, Guardians of the Universe, Guardians of the, oh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Is Marvel Gardens <laughs> of the Universe. Those blue wonky guys. Yeah, the,
2: not the talking raccoon in the tree. Yeah, the
1: giant brain, little people yeah. who give the Green Lanterns the orders. Yes. Uh, scoop up Superman, who like just saved a planet or saved Earth by like making a planet out of spores. I read the comic; it's fucking bonkers. Uh, and hypnot and like what's sub- what's the word um, uh, subliminally suggest that maybe Superman should chill it um on like actually helping humanity too much otherwise he'll like stop the human race from developing and like it's ha- it's the first time superman literally like had to sit around and be like oh fuck what am i doing uh, which results in a um him flying back to earth and just uh finding a riot in a in a vegetable field as the migrant workers are rebelling against their boss hmm um and superman's like oh well i'm superman clearly what i do here is i fight for the oppressed and you know save the day because i'm a creature of oppressed people that may you know who dream of having the strength to correct the injustices of the world and instead he's like no, wait a minute. Let's hear both sides. I can't solve all of your problems, and he like mediates a solution about like when it is okay to strike and when it is okay to like honor contra. It's very bizarre. Uh, and then an earthquake happens, and he saves the day by stopping mm. an earthquake because Superman is still going to help people with for the things that they had no chance of. They helping. can't save themselves yeah. from.
2: I think that one big. Just looking at the Bronze Age at a glance, you know, from a distance, I think one of the big things, like, okay, Superman, uh, or at least the Bronze Age for Superman. Superman is now what thirty years old in in terms of uh, Mm -hmm. being a comic book, not as the guy.
1: Even twenty years, yeah that uh, that Superman musical they were already making fun of
2: Superman right like he's been established and now he's been established so much that now we're starting to find ways to turn the concept on its head mm-hmm. and really play with it and really mess around you know also uh, for the man who has everything which is another Alan Moore story that we covered uh, largely in the Alan Moore episode mm-hmm. but again it's all about um, as
1: told in an amazing uh, Justice League two-parter
2: yeah phenomenal story about how he he uh, imagines essentially that he's like on kryptonite with his family mm-hmm. and everything and it's this beautiful thing and um, uh, and then it ends up being this illusion and it's just this gorgeous story. Just read it. It's so good. And uh, that, again, is just kind of, uh, you know, and Alan Moore, and you have people like Alan Moore coming in and being like, I've been reading Superman for years now. I have a cool idea that would be like a totally different idea with him, you know? Uh, And that kind of stuff was really fascinating. Of course, the bronze age. uh, Did you have any other bronze age stories before I start talking about crisis Um, on infinite earths to uh,
1: point out kind of the excesses of the bronze
2: age? Uh uh, If you
1: look up Superman annual number 10, there is a story called the sword of Superman, which is I'm, I, this is going to be one of those things where I just in a, fugue state rattle off a bunch of fucked up shit that happens in an old comic book so i'll try i love Uh, it turns out the name superman is taken after a primordial weapon that was forged in the big bang (laughs) uh and the idea is literally after the big bang star matter coalesces into the shape of a human sword don't question it (laughs) um and on the pommel is the superman s And it becomes this legendary item of power, which is why it is honored on Krypton as well. And like Superman finally gets a hold of this sword, and also yada yada yada, an ancient Kryptonian was actually the first Green Lantern. Don't even get into that bullshit. Uh, And Superman like finds the sword and has it has the opportunity to become omnipotent, like truly a universal like the Infinity Gauntlet shit, and like uh, smashes it because he he can't accept that responsibility. Uh, But it's so full of like florid like language weird jesus allegories bonkers concepts that everything, they
2: were pretty much everything just sounds like strains of weed like yeah. star matter <laughs> they just made it's the loftiest thing they're just dumping stuff that they expected to be like canon
1: it's, it's, it's so ludicrously um but it's it, it's it's the because comics had more pages and, you know, the writers had a higher opinion of themselves and they had, to, like, loftier goals, uh, you get great stories like the ones we mentioned, and you also get bonkers nonsense like Superman Annual Number 10, The Sword of Superman.
2: <laughs> That's all. All right, so the whole thing is kind of capped off, the whole Bronze Age, right? This is the end of the Bronze Age with Crisis on Infinite Earths, right? That That is the kind of the marker, at least, for... Well, the- they
1: tried to do something called the Disney Explosion, uh, which... Then, uh, mockingly, has now been referred to as the DC implosion because they launched too many titles at once, and the market couldn't bear it. And all these alt, so they just had too many characters running around, and they needed to like drastically just shut everything down and start all over,
2: just get simple. Also, they had to deal with this weird notion of there being multiple Earths, uh, multiple different uh, the multiverse essentially. Um, they wanted to wipe the multiverse clean. Uh, and this is uh, uh, largely led by uh, Marv Wolfman, a writer. Apparently, in 1981, Wolfman was editing Green Lantern, and he got a letter from a fan asking why a character did not recognize Green Lantern in a recent issue, since despite the two having had worked together in an issue three years earlier, and that was all because of the, in, this Infinite Earths nonsense, and he was just fed up with this issue that Even he kept Even Earth receiving. 1 and Earth
1: 2 is too much to, it, get, it's too much to deal with, because, right? Because, uh, like, you know, they had the new Flash and the Silver, age and people began asking well what happened to the old flash and the ass pull answer they had was oh oh, no 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 uh old flash and old green lantern and even uh old super like golden age superman all live on earth two yeah and then once you open up earth two
2: what the fuck
1: so when they acquire captain marvel oh he's on another earth and what happens
2: to the charlton comics characters oh that's on another right and so they decide to come up with this uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths. It's a maxi series mm-hmm. crossover. So in other words, a giant twelve issue crossover event for that lasts pretty much a year. It goes from April 1985 to March 1986. It's kind of the first one of these like giant crossover events that span this like long period of time. We we see these more often nowadays when they want to kind of pull oh, a big. There's
1: literally one happening every
2: year now. Yeah, essentially there's these giant crossover events. So this really was kind of the first one. I forget
1: whether or not Marvel's Secret War happened in response to this or if it was just a... Because that was like Sparked on by a toy line They wanted to kickstart, So and they, I'm not sure What the timeline on that
2: they is. Essentially what they do Is they take this uh, Character called Monitor And Monitor Essentially his whole job Is to kind of monitor The different earths Right Yeah And they take a Opposite Like a Bizarro Essentially version of him Called the Anti-Monitor Who is there Trying to destroy Or take over Different earths There's all these Villains involved That get together That are also trying to Conquer these many Different earths And everything So uh, you have to all the other heroes need to team up essentially work together try to beat them it's largely known for it's just slang of hundreds of characters um uh including supergirl and uh the Barry Allen Flash mm-hmm. uh and uh, by the way Wolfman didn't want to kill Allen but DC ordered him to feeling the character was too dull uh, so they they essentially just like you said wipe the slate clean, kill as many characters as possible, and then rewrite the infinite earths we concept. might do a separate
1: infinite earths episode because yeah, it it's so, so much shit happens
2: it's crazy and yeah I'm just kind of briefly going over it just to give you an idea of how the bronze age was sort of finished off capped off mm-hmm. and what how we're kind of led into the modern age which we'll get into the modern age stuff next week but um that's essentially what happens they and, and by the way they also reduce it down to just one single earth moving mm-hmm. forward so that they didn't have to deal with this multiverse situation uh moving forward uh um, and it should be that. you know
1: we we make fun of the Silver Age all the time, but I I, I think I said this last episode too. It's still sold. Kids loved it. Yeah. Crypto the Super Dog, Beppo the Super Ape, yeah. uh, Super Girl. Uh, it all it, it all worked. Super Boy. Like because for all of our hemming and hawing of like what does it mean to be a Superman? Like how can an icon uh, be human? How can a god bleed? The fact is, I was actually talking to. I was running late, so I ca- I caught a. I called a car to get to the studio. Uh, <laughs> ball in twenty eighteen. Um, I was talking to the driver because I wanted to know what he thought about just like what he thought about Superman. And the fact is, no matter what you do with the character, it's still very fun to imagine being super strong and flying. Like that's never going to be like if you are if you are at the weakest you will ever be as a human being. The one thing you dream of being is big and strong and being able to, like, go anywhere and do anything. Like, Superman could be, like, a cigar-chomping, like, wife beater, and kids would still like him because yeah. he flies.
2: <laughs> so you think if, um, like, Lex Luthor and Brainiac started making out? I
1: like, would be Jack. I'm jacking it right now. <laughs> oh, those two the glisten on the bald heads as they touch foreheads and embrace. So you'd watch it? I would fucking, I would pay <laughs> for it.
2: I'd watch it. <laughs>
1: Uh, Actually, that did kind of happen in the Justice League cartoon <laughs> when they kind of like merged into one being.
2: Oh, they did like a um, Goku Trunks or whatever. Or what is it? Was it was more Gohan of like Trunks? a kind of.
1: It had more of a kind of a, uh, a, a. They did the dance and
2: pointed the. It had, fingers. It
1: had more of a Cronenberg-esque kind of thing as the nano machines ah. like consumed uh, Luther's body, but it was Body-er.
2: sexual. Dude, we will probably. You know what? We should probably do a Cronenberg episode at some point. Long live the new flesh buddy! Hell yeah. Alright, that now, Jake, now we can finally do the thing you wanted to do since you sat down in that chair covered in sweat from the New York summer sun. And we can now finally talk about the late 70s, early eighties Superman film franchise. Okie
1: dokie. Well, superheroes are in a weird point right now. Cause even though like I said, the Silver Age was chugging along just fine, uh, they were still kind of seen as children's stuff. They were still seen as like frivolous. Um the the most popular filmed superhero thing in the world was the sixties Batman series, and even that was like campy and a joke. Yeah. And um
2: And very like golden age inspired. You yeah,
1: know? yeah. Um and so but that didn't stop a trio of uh shady foreign movie producers.
2: <laughs> These for, fucking guys, dude. For the rest of- uh, These guys. In. Um I
1: need to just like this is going to sound weird, but in your like laziest attempt, just like uh voice a uh foreign gibberish man uh yelling angrily at someone.
2: The mega mega mega.
1: Okay, so those are your producers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> these are the uh, a guy named Pierre Spengler, who is this mysteriously wealthy uh, this French
2: guy. is so ridiculous, old French story guy. Is as
1: well as um, uh, Ilya Saulkind, Alexander, and-, and Ilya Salkind. Yes, uh, Alexander was born in some weird. Uh, principality I don't even like literally one of those European micro countries whose sole economy is based on like hookers and money laundering and
2: his son Ilya has the idea for a movie in 1973 after a struggle uh he buys the rights from DC in 1974 with his father Alexander. I think his father's kind of th- the floating the whole situation uh Ilya is just the guy that just says hey we should make a you know a superman movie that'd be that'd probably make a bucket of money
1: and um what they end up doing is uh they uh the the agreement they come to is called a negative pickup yes which can you explain that uh, what it means is uh, they approach Warner Brothers who if I'm not mistaken already owned owned the character at this point um, they approach Warner Brothers and like we want to make a big bombastic movie about Superman it's going to be, be huge it's going to be we're going to shoot two movies at once it's going to be an epic um, but louder and foreigner than that uh, and DC was like okay that sounds dumb and expensive We'll distribute it as soon as... But you guys actually have to finance the whole movie yourselves. And then once it, like, once it's released, we'll, like, we'll dole out the money later. And uh, they, so confident in their idea, say, Okay, now, how do you get a Superman movie to be taken seriously? Mm. Well, what you got to do obviously is get some serious movie people. So the first thing they do is hire
2: Mario Puzo from The Godfather yes. to write a script for $600,000. Not the
1: screenplay. Did wait, did Puzo write the screenplay
2: to I, The Godfather? It says here it's he was hired to write the screenplay, but no. I could be wrong. But
1: did cuz Puzo wrote the book The Godfather.
2: Yeah, he he uh well, he also not just writes Superman, he writes Superman and Superman 2 at the same time. It is a 5 page script yes in July of 1975 okay he did write the screenplay for the guy yes um, but 500 page okay by the way for people at home a normal script length for like a Hollywood script is 110 pages mm-hmm. he wrote a 500 page if somebody handed me a 500 page script to read I would fucking like collapse from exhausted at the side of it that is a lot of script. Yes. That is too much script. It's later reduced to 400 pages, but that is still way too much. And then it's completely rewritten by Tom Mankiewicz. Uh, apologies if I'm jumping ahead too much. It's rewritten by Tom Mankiewicz and expanded back to 550 pages. Uh, it's well,
1: <laughs> well, we'll get into that. Um, the other thing there is like, well, now we need a big name attached. And well, they got the a- biggest name we can get? Uh, the greatest movie star who ever lived, Marlon
2: Brando. Marlon Brando, of course, must be a part of this shit show of a story. Now you, so
1: now you have basically the two. Like you have. The Godfather you're like oh like you don't think a Superman movie is going to be serious we just dumped a bunch of money to get the two most serious movie people we can
2: and they were in negotiations with Francis Ford Coppola to, to That's wreck, it they did not he, get Coppola they did not get him they also didn't get William Friedkin, Richard Lester, Peter Yates, John Giermon, Ronald Neiman and Sam Peckinpah, all these directors, these Hollywood, at the time, like, big deal Hollywood directors, all were in negotiations direct, but they end up going with Richard Donner, another huge director at that time in Hollywood. Well, he was up and coming. He what, He did The Omen. Had he not done The Goonies yet? He had not done The Goonies. Oh, okay, yet. and he hadn't done Lethal Weapon yet. Right. Okay, gotcha. But he did so The Omen. So he came Omen. off The
1: Omen, yeah. which, and... Uh, And so this was his first big offer. He talks about literally taking the call on the toilet and like frantically writing down, like, uh, okay, Superman, all right. And like literally not believing uh, Alexander Salkin was legit because of his weird accent. (laughs) Um, Was like, uh, okay, yeah, sure, you got Gene Hackman signed on, whatever, you weirdo. But the price was right. Uh, Oh,
2: by the way, uh, real quick about Sam Peckinpah. Apparently, Peckinpah dropped out when he produced a gun during a meeting with Ilya. Yes,
1: I heard that story. (laughs) Um, Donner uh, takes a million dollar payday, which, you know, split between two movies uh, would be five times his salary at that point. And uh, gets to work. So many fucking things happen just before they even start filming.
2: Just Marlon Brando in general. Well, uh, Marlon Brando horrifies Saulkind Salkin, by proposing in their first meeting that Jor-El should appear as a green suitcase or a bagel. With Brando's voice I watched,
1: I watched an interview With okay. Richard Donner And apparently
2: This was a power move That Brando would do With any director Because he did this With um, Island of Dr. Moreau He got into a car With one By the way There's a documentary About the making of Island of Dr. Moreau Everyone must watch this <laughs> It is fucking amazing It is like the best documentary About a movie shit show situation uh, And in the car He's like He turns to The director of that And he's like I think I should be a dolphin I think I'll be a dolphin in this movie And we'll just have a talking dolphin He also showed up with that little person That plays the piano He just showed up with that guy And was just like he's in This guy's in the movie now And everyone's like what? That's the kind of mental warfare You had to deal with yeah. With the old late stage Marlon Brando uh, In your a, movie
1: There's a quote I found um, I posted it on my Twitter Because it was like sickening Um <laughs> But uh, he so he got a three and a half million dollar payday for this movie, which was the most anyone had ever been paid for a movie at that time. And uh, in an interview, he's like, I've always found with American film crews that, you know, uh, the amount of teeth they show is when they greet you is directly related to your salary. (laughs) So for two hundred thousand dollars, you get two teeth just kind of like, hey, how's it going? And for a million dollars. You get like 10 teeth. You get like a, oh, hello, Mr. Mr. Brando. <laughs> but for $2 million, you get the full Flatbush Cemetery. Ugh. <laughs> God. But the idea was he keeps doing this because he doesn't want to work. This is old Brando. He is lazy. He loves, like, so Donner says he talked with a producer friend of his, and the producer said... He's going to want to be a green suitcase because he is lazy and loves money. So if he tries to push that on you, he's not like crazy. He literally just wants to sit at home and record the voice lines while you like – film a fucking nonsense object and he doesn't have to work
2: he had it in his contract for specifically 12 days of shooting no more he refused to memorize his dialogue so cue cards were compiled across the set uh he also uh they also found out that he they were planning on filming in italy but they he couldn't film in italy because he had a warrant out for his arrest
1: on obscenity charges because of <laughs> for last, last day Tango in
2: paris which <laughs> last day in paris
1: Pass the butter <laughs>
2: Have you seen it? No, why would I see (laughs) it? Because it's gotta be insane! There's a butter
1: scene, that's all I know. It's fucking gross. Hey, everybody, it's me, your wispy wizard, Jake, here to talk about this week's sponsor, Quip. When you walk down the toothbrush aisle at the store, it doesn't take long before you realize that there are way too many options for someone that just wants to take care of the dumb pieces of bone in their mouth. That's teeth, folks. I'm talking about teeth. And a lot of them have like weird gimmicks. I, for one, have always been a fan of the uh, indicator bristles, but those are things of the past. The fact is you need a fresh toothbrush and maybe like a little bit of extra vibration to kind of help massage the gums and get a really deep, effective clean. And Quip is one of the easiest, cheapest, and most highly precisely engineered things to help you do that. Quip is an electric toothbrush that's a fraction of the cost of those bulkier brushes. You know, the kind that cost an arm and a leg and take up half your sink with its crazy docking station. Quip packs the power to deliver all those cleaning vibrations in a sleek, elegantly designed package that you would think came straight out of the future. Quip has a built-in timer to help you clean your teeth for the dentist-recommended two minutes with pulses to let you know when to switch sides. Honest to God, if you've been brushing your teeth for like 30 seconds just doing the old shake-a-shake-a, gargle-spit, you're doing yourself a disservice. Just those extra few seconds means a world of difference. Plus, with Quip, you get a subscription plan that is ideal for health, not just convenience. They deliver new brush heads on a dentist recommended schedule every three months for only $5. And that's including worldwide shipping. So if you got a dirt mouth in Alaska, they will get you covered. Quip also comes with a travel case that doubles as a micro suction mount that you can place onto any flat surface and it will hold your brush out of the way, out of sight, out of mind. Goodbye, gross, cups goodbye just leaving it on the sink like a monster but hey don't take my word for it it was recommended by oprah and it was named uh one of the best inventions according to time magazine and it was the first subscription electric toothbrush accepted by the american dental association and i mean now this part i'm just making up but i'm pretty sure the three out of four dentists that recommended trident probably would accept it those guys seem pretty cool they recommend gum you could probably buy them off And if that doesn't convince you, they are backed by a network of over 20,000 dentists and hygienists and hundreds of thousands of happy brushers use Quip every day, including my girlfriend. And uh, honestly, if you've ever seen her chompers, like, wow, they would blind your children. So whatever you do, please stop demanding that your children look at my girlfriend's teeth if you care about them. Right now you can change your oral health regimen for the better by picking up Quip for just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash wizard right now, you'll get your first refill pack for free when you order your electric toothbrush. That's your first refill for free when you go to getquip.com wizard. And of course, if you need to spell it, it's G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com
2: slash wizard. So they had to remove production to England in late 1976. The English
1: pound was particularly weak back then. So like shooting there was a no brainer.
2: So also let's talk about Superman himself and, and the man who was able to finally fill the role on Superman. Many, many people were up for this role. There were uh, Bruce Jenner. Patrick Wayne, John Wayne's son, almost had it, but then John Wayne ended up getting uh, super ill and he had to go take care of him and dropped out. Neil Diamond, Charles Bronson, James Caan, Christopher Walken. Mankiewicz said, we found guys with fabulous physiques who couldn't act or wonderful actors who did not look remotely like Superman.
1: And Donner still wanted a no-name because he knew that... Uh, audiences needed to witness this Superman for the first time. Because if you had James Khan flying through the air, you'd just be like, oh, that's James Conn flying. But if it was, if the first time you ever saw this person in flight, you'd be like, oh, that's Superman.
2: Also, though, it came down to a casting director named Lynn Stallmaster. Lynn Stallmaster had been pushing for the unknown Christopher Reeve for a long time, but the producers felt him to be too young and skinny. Um, and they end up uh finally getting Reeve in to do a screen test in February 1977. Reeve stunned the director and the producers, uh, but he was told You to- can
1: find the test footage of this, and he's so nervous that you can see giant pit stains in his Superman <laughs> costume.
2: <laughs> he was also uh, but he was also told to wear a muscle suit to produce the desired muscular physique. Reeve refused, and this is one of the first. Reeve actually
1: begged. Uh, I've watched a lot of um, like old Blu-ray, old DVD behind-the-scenes documentaries. Uh, according to Donner, Reeve like sat him down. And was like, "I I can do this. I look like a nerd, but like I lo- it, I literally was a jock throughout my entire high school years, and like I just got into theater. I can like I used to play football. I can bulk up. Trust me."
2: And he gets helped to bulk up with a uh, by a man named David Prowse, who uh, took him from 188 pounds to 212. Do
1: you know a uh, secret about David Prowse?
2: What's his filthy secret? Uh, he was a uh, legendary uh,
1: kind of Charles Atlas figure in England, kind of the, he would call himself the strongest man in Britain, and his physique was so legendary that he was the uh, man in the Darth Vader suit in the, uh, in the Star Wars movies.
2: So I love that. Superman it's him the character was inspired by these traditional strong men mm-hmm. a- in Europe and now uh, Superman himself in the film Christopher Reeve is being trained by p- kind of like one, some of the last bastions of that strong man yeah you yeah know? uh pretty amazing stuff and and i also feel like this might be one of the first instances of somebody going ham to bulk up uh for a big like big time blockbuster hollywood movie role you know what i mean like now it's always you know everybody chris does chris pratt harder yeah, than chris pratt he chris pratted harder than chris pratt uh so also i wanted to be noted after we talked about about all the crazy ludicrous money that brando's getting uh what was it 3 million i believe yeah. Reeve is getting $250,000. And by the way, they're shooting both Superman 1 and Superman 2 at the same time. He's getting paid that for both total. Between all the effects
1: shots and all the uh, reshoots they had to do for Superman 2, uh, for that initial paycheck, and in theory, uh, kind of kneecapping his entire acting career after it... uh, he was on set. He was on call for about three years
2: straight. It's crazy. Yeah, it took a long time to make it. The budget was fifty-five million dollars, which, by the way, was the most ever spent on a film at that point. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's just kind of this this crazy whirlwind uh, of of insanity. You've got all these all these different characters. Gene Hackman, we just kind of breezed over playing Lex Luthor. Well, He's also making two million dollars off of. They this had film.
1: Uh, so Brando and Hackman. Their contracts were ironclad. So. These movies were shot so out of order and so insanely that, like, just to keep continuity straight, they'd have, like, uh, binders full of documentation to make sure they didn't fuck it up. Uh, Between Superman 1 and 2, all of Hackman's scenes were shot in that, like, early stage. Um, In fact, like, in Superman 2, uh, basically any original footage had to be shemped in, if you remember our... uh, Uh, Evil Dead episode had to be shemped in from behind with a uh, voice impersonator doing ADR just to keep the plot moving. So, like, think about that. Like, before so many of these pivotal scenes were ever shot. Like, you know, one day they're doing like uh, Lex Luthor's uh, jail breakout scene. The next time they're doing. The underground uh, hideout scene from Superman 1. Next day, they're doing the Fortress of Solitude showdown with Zod. Like, all of this was done completely out of order. Donner is uh, working, you know, because they need the esteem of Mario Puzo's script and to say, like, a story by Godfather guy Mario Puzo. uh, Mankiewicz, his friend, uh, who he desperately needed on board because Donner says in as many words uh, he saw what the Salkinds were doing and knew that they would fuck up Superman super hard and so he saw himself as like the last bastion of American like kids that loved Superman to like protect this story
2: but what's crazy is the Salkinds are also shitting all over him and giving him a ton of grief and that is why they actually don't even end up finishing the filming of Superman 2 they start you know kind of running out of money and they're, they're oh getting... they've run
1: out of money several times the Salkinds as well as Pierre Spengler have to uh, go back to warner brothers several times and take more money and
2: they're losing share after share after cut after cut of what and all of their frustrations are getting taken out on donner up remember and that foreign like gibberish Donner's so fault. like
1: richard donner is like hey uh this uh krypton scene we need uh new hula hoops to store the bad guys in you know because the bad guys are in the weird hula hoop prison Uh, We had a malfunction. We're going to need another $500,000 to get a hula hoop director on here. And then on the other end of the line, they just get.
2: (laughs) Also, they they really f- mentally fuck with him by throwing Richard Lester onto the set. Richard Lester directed three and four musketeers for them. He shows up he all of a sudden they just have him just at the set um there and he's like and he even tells Don, he's like, I'm not trying to step on your thing. I just you know, but they just want me here. And and I want to well, be know here. How they got because, Lester on the set. Yeah, I want to be here because they still owe me money for three and four musketeers. Um
1: this is a weird I didn't know how to insert this piece of trivia, but Yeah, it's very the, weird. They shot three musketeers and four musketeers tears on the same time and cut it into two movies and they wanted to pull the same trick again with the Superman franchise because they figured out a loophole that if you're just shooting one big thing and cut it into two movies you only have to pay people once. Right, um, that And makes sense. the Screen Actors Guild actually has something called the Salkind clause ha. specifically
2: stating that if you release two movies, you're paying people for two movies. Right. That's insane. Um so yeah, it's just a crazy nightmare for Donner. Um he's but he's working his ass off anyways, really, if really making movies, it pretty incredible.
1: Um the you know, this is a pre-digital era. Yeah. And star you know, they don't have uh industrial light and magic on their side. Yeah. They are doing things each shot you know they storyboarded it so they know what each shot has to look like but how they execute it is entirely like they have to fix from scratch so a golden gate bridge
2: scale model that's 70 feet long and 20 feet wide the fortress of solitude is a combination of full scale set and matte paintings you've got um uh, the the flying sequences involving a uh, you know t- 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 testing out those first of all with a catapulting a crash test dummy out of a cannon or uh, they also tried a remote controlled Superman um, uh, cast uh, ca- a cast of him uh, with, and also using uh, realistic animation techniques and they ended up at the end doing these different wire riggings for the takeoffs and landings and using pulleys and tower cranes uh, while in the air they had a uh, blue screen essentially. for... For for that like uh, old school blue screen stuff, optical
1: effects, stop motion animation, models, matte paintings, every si- like the screenplay says Superman goes underground and like physically lifts the San Andreas Fault <laughs> back up together, and like they had to figure out how the fuck to film that. It's crazy. Um, and so watching the movies now, uh, you know, you watch a superhero movie in the modern times, and it's all CG. You see every, you know, like, oh, he's flying, that's a CG shot. Oh, he's shooting lasers, that's a CG shot. When you watch the Superman movies now, every single, like, individual special effect is a new piece of trickery that they had to figure out, and it's mind-boggling how quickly they come, one after the other, after the other, after the other. And if you've worked on any sort of film set, you understand how long it takes to set up and execute and retake all of these things, and they're just blasting through this shit. It's honestly... It, the, it's insane. The amount of work that you see on screen watching these movies now where it's all practical or optical effects, it's 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 terrifying when you think about what Donner had to go through in organizing all these different all uh, while
2: getting shit all yeah. while being screamed at the whole time being given a zero respect or uh any any kind of um, nods of of uh you know reassurance you also have a score by john williams which is another classic like he was just on fire at this point you know he'd done star wars and all that good stuff and then uh, speaking of star wars some credit superman along with close encounters of the third kind and star wars with leading towards the big market for sci-fi films of the 1980s and really opening the door and i'd say that's definitely true Mm -hmm. superman is at one point superhero movie at another point total straight up sci-fi film they kind of jump around in terms of that in in the film it's you will
1: believe a man can fly uh,
2: so yeah it, it comes out it makes what 300 million it is a massive hit it's a huge huge hit uh released in december of 1978 and, uh, and at this point, Superman 2, 75% of Superman 2 has already been shot uh, when this movie comes out and it was kind of hinged on whether or not this would be a success. Well, it is, of course, successful enough for them to finish making Superman 2. But boy, do they become a fucker about it and, <laughs> and like, Fire Donner well Donna
1: refuses refuses refuse to work with oh, okay. with those uh, producers
2: again. The producers again. So they hire Richard Lester. People really do not like this that are in the film. Uh the actress who plays Lois Lane, what's her name? Mar- Margot Kidder. You've got um, a bunch of people, even uh, I believe even Hackman also all pissed off about this move with Donner, all pissed off about the treatment of Donner. Well,
1: Donner, like, uh, they'll say Donner was what held that set together because it was terrible working conditions, insane hours. You know, people were busting their ass, putting their bodies on the line on all these rigs, and it was just the natural, like, care that Donner took as a director. Um, uh, uh, Margot Kidder talks about how, like, how Donner would coach Christopher would be completely different than how he talked to Hackman, would be completely different than how he talked to Margot. Um,
2: you know, That's, Which is the mark of a true director, somebody who understands people and understands working with a large team of people and all the different little things that you need to know in order to bring a group of people together and keep them motivated and keep them on the same page. Not only that,
1: but in order to make sure, because of uh, 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 Director's Guild laws... Uh, Lester has to shoot fifty one percent of the movie mm. in order to be the official uh, credited director.
2: So they have to redo stuff that they had already done Done, with Donner. Don't even need. And then Lester is uh, where where Donner has a lot of care. Lester's kind of care less. There's a lot of inconsistencies in the film. Margot Kidder looks completely different uh, in parts of the movie than uh, well, she
1: had gone through some. You know, Margot Kidder famously dealt with uh, manic depressive episodes. Mm. Uh, uh, You know, she was this. Starlet that had been like entwined in like the auteur film scene for a while, and uh, she ended up in a very unhappy marriage. it she she had a rough go of it, so like that intervening year showed when the
2: reshoots happened. Same Reeves' uh, uh, muscularity, his physique had mm-hmm. changed, so it was a lot, it was just really wonky and weird. Superman 2 comes out. You did you watch Superman 2? Yes, this is actually a big debate, um, because uh people will will
1: like through the lens of time be especially after the details of this story came out. People will talk about how Superman One is a better film, so to speak, but you talk to fans and like as much as you wanna like praise the storytelling and the pacing or whatever or like the performances or the chemistry, Superman Two has fucking Ursa and Non and Zod and, like, giant laser heat yeah. vision battles, the dumb cellophane S attack, uh, you know, that scene where the three Kryptonians are just wrecking the White House. Yeah. Uh,
2: it's like, kind of awesome. It's kind of awesome. One cool thing happens way later, though. Uh, Brian Singer while working on Superman Returns a film we'll discuss next week he acquires the rights to the footage of Marlon Brando from Brando's estate Brando ended up suing by the way the Sarkines for like 50 million dollars and all this craziness and held on to the footage his footage was replaced since he uh, ended up doing the suing of the producers and he releases it Singer does as uh, the Richard Donner cut so there's another cut well he
1: used the he wanted to use the uh, Marlon Brando footage in his movie. Oh, okay. And then once Warner Brothers went through all the trouble to get the rights to the footage, they're like, "Well, we better get like we better make use of this." So they put out The Richard Donkey. Ah,
2: interesting. Um he just kind of was working to to get it.
1: Uh which Oh, God. We'll talk about it next time. But, like, God, Superman Returns. What a weird-ass move. We'll talk about it.
2: We'll talk about it. So, anyways, after the first two, things don't keep going as strongly as they were. Uh, Superman 3, which is the last Superman film produced by the Salkinds, which is released in 1983, has uh, all this camp and over-the-top slapstick. They cast Richard Pryor in the film. He's, like, one of the main characters. Uh, the office you, space plot
1: where they're stealing pennies on every stock
2: transaction or some shit. Um, uh, we've got, this is a, a from a review, uh, of, of Superman 3 when not overusing sight gags slapstick and Richard Pryor Superman 3 resorts to plot points rehashed from the previous Superman flicks uh, Reeve said of the film he was always looking for a gag uh, I believe this is uh, a kind is who's Reeve's talking about sometimes to the point where the gags involving Richard Pryor went over the top I mean I didn't think that this, his going off the top of a building on skis with a pink tablecloth <laughs> around his shoulders was particularly funny <laughs> I guess the comedy is in the eye of the beholder, though. Jake, uh, did you watch Superman three?
1: I did not end up getting to Superman three. <laughs> um,
2: I can't believe it.
1: But uh, it, there's something it's it's very telling because the um because P- uh, Puzo's original script was very campy, was very goofy. Uh, a detail that uh, Donner keeps pointing out to was that there was a com- there was a shot there was a scene in the original uh, screenplay where Lex Luthor is walking down the street and out of nowhere, Telly (laughs) Savalas walks by as Kojak with a lollipop in his mouth and just goes, who loves you, baby? Love the haircut. And keeps walking. Why? Because nobody, because Superman was goofy. Yeah. And the first two Superman movies really do kind of lovingly kind of hang their hat on the cartoonishness of it, but there's a lot of love in it as well.
2: Yeah, it's kind of bridging the gap between the campiness of Batman and where we get to with super superhero film. You know? Yeah,
1: um, and just by the time they get to three and four, it's just all yuck yucks. They just have no like sense of of uh, I guess reverence for the character anymore.
2: So that is though is not the worst of the four Superman films. Uh, in fact, this next movie is known as maybe one of the worst movies ever made in some camps. It is Superman 4, the quest for peace produced by Canon Films and Warner Brothers. And apparently Canon ran out of money during the production and released a completely unfinished film. Uh, th- this is a quote I think this is from Christopher Reeves but I'm not completely sure I don't know why I wouldn't put the name down this is what he had to say we were also hampered by budget constraints and cutbacks in all departments Canon Films had nearly 30 projects in the works at the time and Superman 4 received no special consideration for example Connor and Rosenthal wrote a scene in which Superman lands on 42nd Street and walks down the double yellow lines to the United States where he gives a speech if that had been a scene in Superman 1 we would have actually have shot it on 42nd street Richard Donner would have choreographed hundreds of pedestrians and vehicles and cut to people gawking out of office windows at the sight of Superman walking down the street like the Pied Piper instead we had to shoot an, an at an industrial park in England in the rain with about a hundred extras not a car in sight and a dozen pigeons thrown in for atmosphere even if the story had been brilliant I don't think we could ever have lived up to the audience's expectation with this approach and that is actually one of the mo- more classically known scenes because it looks so fucking mm-hmm. ridiculous and low budget, and this is Superman and it's just so glaringly obvious that they have no budget and they don't know what the fuck they're doing
1: also at this point it was kind of like sad that Christopher Reeve had to just accept the fact that he had been thoroughly typecast and like his only paycheck left was to keep doing Superman movies yeah uh, I it also but it did have the nuclear man the weird <laughs> like jerry curled yeah by no weird guy so bizarre um the scene where he was trapped in an elevator on the moon and like you got to see the sliver <laughs> of that sunlight.
2: That sentence is ridiculous.
1: What? This nuclear man gets trapped in an elevator car on the moon. It's fine. <laughs> it works. It's brilliant, really. Um, yeah, it kind of uh, uh, was a misstep. Uh, for the record, the producers of that movie uh, through canon was uh, Golan and Globus, the guys that fucked over uh, the trauma, <laughs> trauma guy to making the Israeli movie. Yes, that's um,
2: amazing. So, and Canon did master the universe, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and there's a great documentary about Canon. Uh, I think it's still on Netflix, but yeah, they're just a whole kooky film production company that's kind of kind of like Troma, but maybe even more ridiculous. Uh, and they just made a bunch of Schlock. Uh, back in the back in the 80s, uh, so yeah, that that's 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 where the original films kind of ends. The only thing I'd like to g- wrap up here because I just don't want to necessarily talk about it next week is uh, the lawsuits with uh, Siegel real fast. Just um, wanted to cover that. It's a very sad tale, and I just want to nail it down now. Uh, so in 1969, Siegel attempts to regain the rights of Superman using the Copyright Act of 1909. He did not win his case even after an appeal. Detective had rehired Siegel in 1957, but they fired him again because of his uh, lawsuit. So this is a hilarious thing. They keep hiring him again, and then he sues them, and then they fire him, right? And then this happens later in 1975. Siegel and a number of other comic book writers and artists launched a public campaign for better compensation and treatment of comic creators. Warner Brothers agrees to give Siegel and Schuster a yearly stipend, full medical benefits, and credit their names in all future Superman productions in exchange for never contesting ownership of Superman... Um, and after Siegel's death in 1996 the family comes again for the rights DC made a deal with them to stay away but get oodles of bucks Uh, they went back and forth with DC for the next decade but DC keeps the rights keeps maintaining the rights Um, but Superman will hit the public domain in 2033 Uh, just not that fucking far from now
1: yeah but here's the thing you always have to keep up when Mickey Mouse will hit the public domain because Uh. Disney lobbies hard to get those extensions done
2: gotcha um especially because it's very easy so when does mickey hit it do they just keep getting extensions they keep
1: getting extensions um they did an episode of adam ruins or they did a segment on adam ruins everything about that like pretty clearly lays it out but basically it's it's not that far because originally it was it was a good thing that like you know you made your money and then the stories and the characters and the intellectual property enters the public domain so people just have access to like culture and can like remix and do fun things with it yeah um but now in this international marketplace united states companies having intellectual property is a massive part of our economy so it doesn't take a lot of finagling with a congressman to be like would you want uh, a lot of these poor kids in orlando to be out of work right right so like it's 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 no longer the public good, but that I want to see Mickey does. with a human penis. Well, fucking, I'll Google for you. I'll get oh. you. I'll get you. Lex Luthor kissing Brainiac, Lois Lane kissing Supergirl, and Mickey in the corner, just like just blasting every rope and every color imaginable. Yeah,
2: Jake, but would you look at it? I would, I'm looking at it now Through the magic of Imagination And that I think Is where we'll end Our Superman part what 2 What is this show <laughs> Who listens to this Many people They like this show Jake They definitely would Look at it If you would look at it By the way Please write <laughs> I would look at it In our Facebook We'll start a Facebook Uh Group uh, a comment post and just write. I would look at it in that post. We'll we'll, we'll be sure to put. Those if you
1: out. want to discuss uh, movies and news and the myriads of topics that we've talked about on the show, check out the Wizard and the Bruiser page on Facebook. It is honestly a good hang. I check it every day, and uh, I love it. Please don't come over and poison it with your, with your, with your bad thoughts.
2: <laughs> um, also check us out on Patreon. If you want to support the show more for just five bucks a month, you can get bonus content every single week. Uh, Jake and I are just about to record our weekly, our wrap up on E3. We do interviews. We do all sorts of different stuff. Mike Lawrence from nerd of mouth has done the show. We've had Adam from Adam ruins everything, which you just mentioned on Henry uh, Zabuska, Henry Zabru- Zabrowski and, uh, many more. So come check that out if you want. And, uh, any little amount is appreciative speaking of appreciating little things if you haven't written a review and rated us on iTunes please please do so it's so little and it means so much to us we we check those rankings a lot and it's such a petty stupid thing but it really does mean a lot to see us high in the rankings we, honestly Jake we've been doing really cool lately like it has been kind of amazing to see the support is incredible from you guys so I just want to thank you for everything that you do and just for listening to the show because you could there's so much entertainment out there to consume and choosing us means the world to us and all of your kind words never go unnoticed. People write wonderful things to me, and it's, like, amazing, and um, it makes me feel all warm and shit. And also, by uh, you can talk to me directly on my chat in Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash ho. Check it out. Jake?
1: Uh, you can follow me on Twitter, at BestJakeYoung, and keep an eye on the Dorkly website and YouTube channels uh, for all sorts of interesting things that I contribute to in minor ways. I'd look at it. I'd look at it so hard. <laughs>